Um, well, let me ask you a question. What is the largest crowd you've ever been part of? Can you think of what that is? Um, I was given that a little bit of thought this past week, and I think I've narrowed it down to one of three options. It was either a U2 concert, uh, a professional football game, or a Promise Keepers, Promise Keepers conference. Uh, I'm not sure which one of those had the most masses of people, but each one of them had just a tremendous number of people all assembled together, uh, and there was some kind of unifying purpose that brought people together. And uh, it's a little bit what I want to talk about this morning is groups, um, unifying groups and, and together. The passage we're looking at this morning, it's about a crowd, a very large crowd, um, and I believe that if we were there... Um, in the first century Israel, we would have been a part of this crowd as well. This crowd that we're going to look at, it was made up of people who understood that at the deepest level of life, there's, there's something very wrong. Uh, there's something very broken about this world that we're living in, that things don't work the way they ought to, not in our world and, and not in our lives either, um, you know, the front page of the, of the morning newspapers every day is just this ongoing reminder that there's so much uh, that ought not to be, whether it's bloodshed or disease or, or tragedy. It's all around us. We can't escape it, and it's not right. And, you know, if we're to look at the very big picture story of Scripture, uh, what we find out is that broken That's been the default setting that our world wakes up to every day, Uh, that ever since that moment in the Garden of Eden, when when everything that started out as good somehow went bad. That happened when our first parents bought the lie, and, and they chose to live autonomous lives. They chose to live independent from the God who created them, and, uh, and as a byproduct of that, uh, the current location where you and where I live today is, it would be called East of Eden. Uh, the Bible describes it as a fallen world, um, as a cursed existence even, and that means basically to put it in today's term that everything is jacked up in one way or another. Nothing works the way that God designed it to, and so our lives are filled with things like like hiding from each other, right? That was the first outcome of, uh, of the fall. Adam and Eve started hiding from each other. Um, there's toil, there's conflict, and ultimately the defining feature of a world gone wrong is, is the reality of death. Death is a reality for one and each and every one of us. And, and in some way, I think that every person on this planet is looking for a way to get back to our original setting, to get back to that place called Eden, to back to that garden existence, to find a way to get past all of the brokenness, all of the pain, and somehow get to a life and into a world, into an existence that that's the way it ought to be. Now, there's all kinds of different strategies people choose to get there, but I think just about everyone I've ever met is somehow looking to find their way to that destination. Now, if you have a Bible, I want to, open, I want to invite you to open it to Mark chapter 5. Um, it's also going to be right behind me here on the screen. We've been making our way through the gospel of Mark this entire fall. Um, Mark 
is the very first written testimony about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus Christ, who stands today still as the most influential person to ever walk the face of the planet throughout all of human history. And and this account was written down to answer this one question. I've been talking about this just about every week because I do convinced in the in deepest part of who I am that this is the most critical question any of us will ever give an answer to. And, and the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I, I hope and I pray that if you've been with us that you're, you're continuing to wrestle with that if you've never have before. And the scene that we're looking at this morning is going to be um, bringing that question into, sharpest, into very sharp focus. Uh, once again, and, and what we see is that uh, Jesus is the one sent by God to bring us back, to restore um, our world and our lives back to the way God originally designed, designed them to be. And so we're going to see w- restoration, what it looks like, and, and, and who it comes from. So I'm going to start out reading in verses 21, and uh, here's what it says. It says, when Jesus had crossed again, In the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, meaning Jesus, went with him. Okay, so just to, to catch up to speed where we left off last week, Jesus had, had, had taken a boat to the other side of the sea, and, and here he's landing back on, on home ground. He's back in Jewish territory. And as he steps off the boat, he finds out once again that this great crowd has gathered. Uh, we've seen this crowd before. It's a massive crowd, and it's back again. Um, and what we're going to find is there's two faces in this crowd that emerge and they make their way to Jesus. There's two broken people who, who, who much like you and like me, were experiencing the very real effects of living in this jacked up world, this world that's gone wrong. And in their desperation, they reach out and turn to Jesus in search of healing, hope, and restoration. So this first one that we meet is, is a man of distinction. And it's no coincidence that uh, he's introduced first by his title and then by his name. And so he's introduced as among the rulers of the synagogue. And then after that, that, yeah, and his name is Jairus. And and, and we're going to read more. And as we do, we'll find out that the name Jairus, we don't ever hear that again throughout the rest of his story. But his title gets repeated four times in just these very few verses because this was a big deal. This was the ruler of the synagogue. And in first century Israel, a a synagogue ruler was a a very prestigious person. Um, Jairus was a distinguished member of society. And and much like in our Western world today, um, way too much significance get poured into titles, into positions. And and based on this position that he held, Jairus is presented as a man who's made it, ruler of the synagogue, honorable judge, distinguished professor, PhD. 
I, I think mine's the best. Reverend. Right? Revered one. I don't know about that. But every society has all kinds of ways of, of applying ex- Exclusive status on people's lives, on certain individuals, and the assumption is once you've got that title, once you've earned to that level and that position, you're set up, right? At that point, doors start opening, things start happening, because membership has its privileges. That's, that's how the story often goes, but in this scene that we're reading about here, it's telling a whole different side to the story. What this story that we're reading about is this saying that that position and achievement and advancement and accomplishment or whatever else you want to lay out there, none of that can insulate anyone from the realities of living in this broken down world. This prestigious synagogue ruler, he's a desperate dad. He is in the thick of a situation that None of us would ever wish on even our worst enemy. This is terrible. The daughter that he loves is is lying at home. She's in bed and, and she's on the brink of death. And the reality is that no title, no position, no amount of prestige is able to do a thing about it. And of course, what's what's true for him, it also applies to our lives today. Because the reality of living in a world gone wrong, sooner or later, it comes crashing down on us. It doesn't matter what title you have. It doesn't matter how many degrees you've earned. It doesn't matter how high a position you hold. At some point, this broken world brings us to a breaking point. Uh, You know, for, for us as a family, this has just hit way too close to home for us this year. Um, some of you know that right after Easter, the day after Easter, our 17-year-old nephew was killed in a car accident, and it's just been, it's just been a year of tragedy. It has been just nonstop heartbreak. It has been so difficult, and, uh, and I know that we're not the only ones. Um, we can all tell our own stories. We have been through a year and a half of covid and tragedies and, and all kinds of loss, all kinds of things that we look at and we say, this is just not right. This ought not to be. But the reality is there's no hall pass out of it. This is the world that we live in. And for Jairus, this prestigious synagogue ruler who was at a point of desperation, his desperation drove him to Jesus. And, and, and make no mistake, the, the hard realities of life they're going to drive our lives somewhere. They're going to bring us to something. And for some, it's going to be something like drinking and, and addictions. Or, or for others, it might be distractions, overworking, or just getting lost in entertainment. Um, for others, it's just delusions, just setting up some kind of make-believe world that doesn't actually exist, but, but just numbs out the reality. Jairus was driven to Jesus, and he falls down. He pleads, would you come? Would you help me? And Jesus went. And, and this marks the moment when his journey with Jesus began. The breakdowns in our lives, oftentimes those become the entry points where Jesus enters in and where he breaks in. Take note of that. Now, now there's a second part 
to Jairus' story, um, but we're going to have to wait just a little bit to hear what happens next because what happens next is actually something very unexpected comes crashing onto the scene as Jesus and Jairus are making their way to a very urgent destination. Um, something unexpected crashes in. Uh, again, take note that the journey with Jesus, it seldom unfolds the way we expect. If, if you've been doing life with Jesus for any amount of time, you probably can nod your head in agreement and say, yeah, I, I know that. I get that. I've experienced that. Uh, divine appointments come, and oftentimes they present themselves in the form of very inconvenient interruptions. And, and that's what happens next as the second face in the crowd emerges very reluctantly. And we're going to read her story next. It says this, um, as they're making their way to Jairus' house, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to her who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So this is face number two. And, and this woman, very much like Jairus, is, is dealing with her own desperate situation. Um, she's another Example of a broken down person living in a broken down world. But that's where the similarities stop because when it comes to her status in society, she, she's just about as polar opposite from Jairus, the synagogue leader, as you can get. So, so Jairus is a somebody. This woman, we never even actually hear her name. She's a nobody. Uh, Jairus falls down front and center right before Jesus this woman, she tiptoes anonymously from behind. She doesn't want to make a scene. She doesn't want to be known. And there's a really good reason for that. You see, where, where Jairus was at the center of Jewish society, this woman was, was shut out from it. It tells us that she's suffering from a bleeding issue. And as hard as that is on a physical level for her to deal with, there's there's also a very isolating side effect that comes attached to that. You see, this is, this is happening in first century Israel where they followed the Old Testament purity laws. These are the laws that highlight the holiness of God. And according to those laws, this woman's affliction puts her in a state that's deemed unclean. That means that she has been shut out from the synagogue, right? The synagogue that Jairus is in charge of, that he's ruling over, for the last 12 years of her life, she hasn't been able to go and to worship. And according to Hebrew law, she can't even touch another person without passing on her uncleanness to them. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, you can read the book of Leviticus. It is not a very compelling read, 
Um, it is filled with all kinds of laws and standards. And Leviticus chapter 15 is a whole chapter filled on the laws about bodily discharges. Um, feel free to read it when you get home. And after you do, you can close your Bible and thank God that that's not us, that we live under grace and not under the law that Jesus went to the cross and did all of those things and fulfilled all of those things that we can't, that we can't fulfill. But, but let me, if, if it's okay with you, I just want to take about a minute and a half and unpack this whole idea of purity laws. What is this? What is it all about? Because it kind of unlocks the entire scene here. And, and at first glance, I know, um, if you've never heard about this before, it really seems like, what is going on here? This is way over the top. And so these laws... Um, that were in effect for, for Jews in the first century, they are a visual, a visual way of understanding, of, of wrapping their heads around the absolute purity and the holiness of God. And the idea is that God cannot coexist in unclean conditions. And so people can't come near to a holy God with lives that are soiled. All right, now, you might think that that sounds, you know, ridiculous. That sounds a bit over the top. But you do the same thing. Um, it happens to us all the time. So it's a little bit like when I get home at the end of a bike ride in the middle of July, when it's 90 degrees, it's hot and humid, and I finish a 20-mile bike ride. And by the way, I can't wait for those hot, humid, 90-degree July days to come again. We got snow out there already. Come on. But I walk in the house after that bike ride, and I am just a dripping ball of sweat. Everything. Sweat all over the place. And I come through the door. I see my beautiful bride, and I say this, hey, babe, how about a hug? And you know what she says? She says, I love you, but I'm not getting near you until you get a shower. Right? Right? I got an even more recent example because this morning I went back to the soundboard and I'm putting all my notes in for the sermon and I mentioned to the guys on the soundboard, yeah, I'm fighting a cold, right? And on cue, they moved five feet away. (laughs) Brett put his mask on. Chris is like five feet away. And, uh, you know, I got the sanitizing out before I finished. Um, We get that. We understand that. And... And, and, and these physical realities that we deal with in this life on a day-to-day basis, they point to spiritual realities, to, to these invisible things that we don't always understand. And, and they tell us that God is holy, that he's pure, that he's spotless in a way that we can't even comprehend. We can't comprehend the holiness of God. But as our lives as a result of our, of our sin, of living in a, in a sin-broken world, um, they get soiled. And this is one of the consequences of living in a fallen world, isolation, separation from God and from each other. And this woman is feeling it. She has been in a 12-year timeout. So, okay, so that kind of sets the scene. And now, with that in mind, maybe you can understand why this is such a big deal, why she is doing this on the QT as she reaches out to touch Jesus' robe. It's because it's illegal. 
She is breaking CDC protocol. And if anyone catches her, she is going to end up in, in really serious trouble. But, but she's desperate. She has been a socially distanced outcast for 12 years. And she reaches out. She touches her hand against the healer that she's heard about. And instantly... She's healed. It's a miracle moment. There's no other way to describing. The bleeding stops, and she actually feels something on her insides. She knows she's been restored. That's the physical part. But you know what the focus is on? It's on what happens next. That's really where the focus of this passage is. This is what's so significant, because she quietly tries to tiptoe off the scene Anonymously, no one's going to notice. Jesus calls her out. He, he makes a scene of what's going on right there in front of this massive crowd, in front of everyone. Can you just imagine what's going through her head at this moment? She's probably like dying a thousand deaths. She's like, oh, I got caught. I've been exposed. And it says she came to Jesus with fear and with trembling. This, this may be the, actually the scariest moment of her entire life, but, but take note of this. What starts out as a scary moment, it turns into a sacred moment. And, and, and don't miss that. This is what happens with us when we bring our brokenness before him. Because Jesus isn't done with her yet. There is more that he is in mind, he has in mind for her life. He doesn't just want her healed His intention is to make her whole. And so she comes and she comes clean. She tells her whole broken story. And and did you catch Jesus' response? First thing is this. He addresses her, not as woman, but as daughter. Daughter. Jesus is telling her, you belong he identifies her as you are a part of the family. This, this outcast daughter that has not been able to be included in anything. You matter as much to me as Jesus, he says, as, as Jairus' daughter mattered, mattered to him. And now because of this touch, because of this meeting with the Savior, she's no longer on the outside. She's no longer excluded. She's included. And that's not it. He goes on and he assures her. You took a risky act. You took a risky act of faith. And, and that act of faith, he says, it didn't make me unclean, just, to, just so you understand. It didn't infect me. In fact, he says, it did the opposite. You touched me, and my wellness transferred to you. Right? That's something we don't understand. You know, if I'm sick and I'm going back to the soundboard, Brett doesn't say, hey, let me just touch you, and I'll... I'll heal your disease by just uh, touching you, and then my wellness will come to you. This is, this is a one and only kind of thing. Um, and the word for well that Jesus uses, it, it, it isn't the word for healed, so we're not talking about something physical here. The word literally translates as saved. Saved. You've been delivered. Every part of your life has been restored. And then he wraps it up by blessing her. And he tells her this, go in peace. And and that word peace 
That's a, that's a rich word. It's a rich Hebrew word. It translates as shalom. And that brings them right back to the garden. Shalom. That at the Garden of Eden, this existence of being in right relationship both with God and with people and being restored on every level of life, physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual, the whole package. This is it's a beautiful snapshot. And maybe what's most fascinating about this whole episode is that Jesus audaciously assumes the authority to do all that. Right? That's not something I can do, but he can. He doesn't tell her, okay, now that I've done this, go to the temple, present yourself there, and let them declare you clean. He, he, he does it himself. The idea is that healing, that restoration, it's all bound up in him. And, and this is such a beautiful picture of, of what this, this thing we call that the, we, we read in Jesus' primary message about the kingdom of God. This is what it's all about. It's about Jesus taking the brokenness of this world and bringing it back to the way it's supposed to be. He is applying his ultimate authority right to the point of need to those broken down lives, building them up again, bringing them back to God's original intention. And you know what's great is to see that over the years that, uh, that Jesus' people have always been the first ones to do the same, the first ones to line up in the wake of a natural disaster. You'll always find Jesus' people running onto the scene. We want to help. Things have been torn down. We want to build them back up. When you see people marginalized, it's always Jesus' people who are running there to the scene to help and bring them back in. This is why hospitals are often called by the names of saints. They were started by Christians who knew that this was the call of the kingdom of God to build, to bring back in, and to help and to heal. This is, this is restoration. And so we see this one life getting restored. But we've got to get back to Jairus' story now because this interruption is, has been resolved. But as this one life restores, gets restored, we're going to find out that another life has been lost. Um, let's go back and read the rest of the story. It says this, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went to where the child was and Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So, so word arrives that it's too late. Jairus' daughter is dead. And because that's the case, the messenger urges Jairus, don't trouble this guy anymore. There's nothing left to do. 
The assumption being, of course, is that death means game over, right? And, and that's understandable throughout the course of human history. That's pro- pretty much the way it works, right? That's pretty much the place where the story stops. They say, yeah, this Jesus guy, he's pretty amazing. Uh, he can heal the sick, and that's one thing. But raising the dead, that is, that's got to be where Jesus taps out. But in the face of this devastating loss, Jesus focuses on Jairus, and he speaks these five very, very powerful words. These are words that, that mean so much to me in so many areas of my life. And Jesus says this, do not fear, only believe. This audacious disposition of faith in the face of a reality that seems the exact opposite of it. Do you know that the most repeated command in the New Testament, do you know what it is? Do not fear. Do not fear. Always repeated because it's so easy to let fear in the driver's seat of our lives, to let that motivate our actions, especially in the wake of so much loss, especially living in a world where there's so much that is so broken. And when we're face-to-face with the ultimate side effect of a jacked-up world that's gone wrong, which is death, Jesus says this, do not fear, only believe. Because what we see here, what we find out here for the very first time is that Jesus has a very unique take on death. He has a take that no one else has. And this is the first time he encounters it. But we know if you've read the rest of the story, it's not the only time. It's not the last time. Death is to Jesus what sleeping is to us. All right? So when those in the house hear that Jesus says, do not fear, only believe, they laugh. They laugh. And if you listen, you will still hear the sound of that laughter. It's ridiculous. Do you have any grip on reality? Do you have any idea what you're talking about? Yes. It's fear or it's faith. And death is not final. It is a temporary state. And upon the command of Jesus, this little girl gets raised back up to life. And, and this, is, this is what's cool, like, right? Peter is, is the apostle who, who, who dictated the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. I mean, sorry, the gospel of Mark. He, he's telling his stories to Mark. Mark is writing them down. And he was one of the three disciples who were there in that room. And, and, and this scene must have just been etched into Peter's mind because he recalls the very words. There's not many places in the Bible where it goes back to the original Aramaic because Jews in the first century, they spoke Aramaic, but they wrote in Greek. And so he recites the actual Aramaic, Talitha Kumai, simple words spoken by Jesus. And then he translates it for his readers so they don't miss it. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And the girl got up. And make no mistake, this is something unprecedented. This is something that made such an impact on Peter that this is just something that uh, he had to recite in that way. This this is 
This is a descriptive moment, uh, not so much a prescriptive moment where we can say, okay, let's apply that to our situation. What this is telling us is that there is one who has walked this planet who has dominion over death. And after this, he would ultimately go on and stare at death in the face, face it himself, and conquer it. And, and this is the place I find as I was reading it this, this week that this is where our situation, where we're at in the course of this salvation story, the story of redemption is so much like Jairus's, right? We're, we're, we're dealing with so much brokenness, so much loss, so much that seems so final. And so these words that Jesus said to him apply to us as well. Do not fear, only believe, because death is not going to have the last word. The day is going to come when Jesus will return and he will give the command and the graves are going to open and the dead are going to rise. And until that day, our call is to live in faith and not fear. And and, and I'm watching my relatives who are wrestling with such heartache and heartbreak do that very thing, struggling and wrestling to live in faith and not fear. Because we are living in the in-betweens. We are living in the in-between moments between what is now and what ultimately will be. And that's where faith enters in. And and it's, it's about the object of our faith, not, not the amount of faith that we have, right? We got two people here. We got Jairus and we've got this woman. One had a lot of faith. The woman had a lot of faith. Jairus needs to be reminded about having faith. But that's not the point. It's a point what the object is, and it's, it's Jesus. This one who has the power and the authority to ultimately lead this broken down world and take our broken down lives and redeem them and restore them and bring everything back to God's original design. And so to go back to the beginning one more time in the dust of the fall at the, and the Garden of Eden after everything had gone sideways, right then and right there, God promised. He said, this, this is a mess. This is not what I had in mind. But he said, I'm going to make it right again. He said, I'm going to work through the seed of the woman and through that one is eventually going to come who will be the Messiah, who would be the Savior. The prophets foretold him. The the people of Israel were set apart for this purpose. And and this one day, this, this one would come who would set right everything that had gone so wrong and put all the broken pieces back together again. And so these stories, these two faces in the crowd, they, they kind of together tell a, a composite. This, this is what restoration looks like. And it also tells us this is where restoration comes from. Jesus is God's way back to the garden. And the broken pieces get put back together in him. And what that means is that the way back 
is not going to be the outcome of some kind of humanitarian effort. And that does seem to be the most common alternative is if we can just get all of the religions out of the way and just come together as a people and really try hard, we can put this broken planet back together. That sounds all nice until you've opened up a history book for about three minutes. Because history tells the story quite clear that when you take God out of the equation, the outcome is beyond tragic. And there's so many examples, whether it be Nazi Germany or communist China, North Korea, or any other atheistic regime. Now, that's not to say when, when God is in the equation, the outcome is not always perfect. But make no mistake, there is no comparison And so these are two faces in the crowd, and there are many faces in this room today. Each and every face is a face of a broken-down person living in a broken-down life. And the good news is that Jesus is in the business, continuing to put the pieces back together. He is the one who is able to take our brokenness and turn it into something beautiful. And that means there's a story that he has in mind to write through your life, through my life. And yeah, there's a lot of brokenness, but he wants to make it into something beautiful. Let's pray together.